If you're a longtime Geeks Guide to the Galaxy listener, please rate and review us on iTunes or using the podcast app on your phone. And I want to give a special thank you to Triffid Eater, who just gave us this five-star review. Great podcast, great execution, coupled with a wide variety of guests and topics, make this a wonderful podcast. Not every topic hits home for me, but that's to be expected. Thank you all for a great contribution. So big thanks again to Triffid Eater for that great review. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 545 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me, Please, and Other Stories. Publishers Weekly writes, Visceral settings and robust characters will have readers marveling at how much Kirtley is able to fit into a limited page count. For SFF fans with no time to sink into a doorstopper, these concentrated doses of genre goodness will hit the spot. So again, the book is called Save Me, Please, and Other Stories, and it's available now on Amazon.com. And today on the show, we'll be discussing Season 1 of the Apple TV Plus series Silo, based on the novels by Hugh Howey. And this will include spoilers for everything in the show, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed Magazine and the series editor of The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. And he's also edited more than 40 other anthologies. His most recent projects are the Amazon Original Stories collection, The Far Reaches, featuring stories by James S.A. Corey, Veronica Roth, John Scalzi, Nettie Okorafor, Rebecca Roanhorse, and Anne Leckie, and it's Out There Screaming, an anthology of new black horror, which he edited with Jordan Peele. So, John, welcome back. Always good to be here. The next up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner, making her 26th appearance on the show. She's the author of many essays, mostly on the intersection between fandom, science fiction, feminism, and social justice, with titles such as Science Fiction Often Wins the Bechdel Test by Breaking It, which is part of its job. She's also the chief creative officer at Lightburn Software, so she has access to an army of laser cutters, and she's currently planning the company's first convention. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. And also joining us today is Raphael Jordan, making his 16th appearance on the show. He's written over 25 feature films, including Lost Colony, The Legend of Roanoke, The Immortal Voyage of Captain Drake, and Star Runners. He also co-created and co-wrote Salvage Marines, a space opera series starring Casper Van Dien and Peter Shinkoda, and he's also the lead guitarist of Visera, an L.A.-based rock band who provided music for the series. So, Raphael, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Level 16. Sweet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's start off with Sarah and have you tell us about your expectations going into Silo. I was pretty much on board when I saw the preview. And like, unlike a lot of my friends, apparently, I had absolutely no, I had not heard of this. It's one of those things where like, when I, you know, posted about how good this series was, everyone was like, oh, yeah, I read the book 10 years ago. (laughs) And I'm like, who are all these? And then I realized like, oh, I had a lot going on 10 years ago. And that's why I, I missed it. But it was just one of those funny things where, you know, I had just never personally 
heard of it. And I was very excited because I'm just, I love what Apple TV Plus is doing, especially when so many of the other streamers are making really penny wise, pound foolish decisions right now. Mm. Um, you know, Apple, Apple is just, you know, they get it. Like they're making, they're focusing on science fiction, first of all, which makes me very happy. But they're also, you know, the production quality is just incredible. The level of detail in all of their shows is just incredible. But they're also willing to, you know, they're not operating the same way that other streamers seem to be operating right now, where something has to do amazingly well in the first two weeks or else it never gets a second season, you know, and then it disappears entirely from the streaming platform and you can't even watch it. And, you know, so it's, uh, I, just i i absolutely love it but i didn't know anything going in yeah i mean on this podcast we've reviewed foundation and severance um are there other apple tv plus science fiction shows that i that people should check out i enjoyed c <laughs> like i think c is very much a you know there's certain things about it that were very f- sort of formulaic and and, uh, but I absolutely loved certain aspects of it. Um, but there are, you know, they've been doing a couple of other things too, and they have a couple of things in development that I'm really mm. excited about. I mean, For All Mankind is incredible. I mean, yes. and, and yes. any, any, any science fiction fan definitely should watch it. Cause it's like, it's like starts off alternate history, but then it gets into, so it, it stays alternate history, obviously, but it gets into so many like hardcore science fiction stuff, um, or topics that it's, uh, it's really dope. Uh, and it's just amazing yeah. acting and production and uh, you know writing and everything. Yeah, Apple TV has been absolutely killing it between C, Severance, Foundation, For All Mankind, and now this. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm an Android PC guy, but credit where it's <laughs> due. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess I'll just explain for listeners if you don't know. So the, this, the backstory with this book is that Hugh Howey was just, you know, uh, sort of a, a kind of unknown self-published author. He was... Uh, a book sort of bookstore employee slash, uh, you know, hired yacht captain and just <laughs> sort of self-publishing stuff, you know, not really expecting to make any money or, you know, just for, for just wanting to get his work out there for, for whatever small audience would find it. And he published a, a short story set in the wool, uh, sort of the silo slash wool universe. Um, and just thinking of it as, as a standalone short story, which is basically the first episode of the show, mm-hmm. I guess, more or less. Yeah. And, um, and people were just like, oh, this is great. I want to, I want more. And so he eventually wrote five stories and packaged them together as a book. And it just became this viral mega sensation on, you know, the Kindle, um, you know, the Amazon Kindle direct publishing store. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he was reportedly making a hundred thousand dollars a month. Just having self-published this uh, this wall book. Um, see, John, do you uh, is there anything else to say about the back that, that Hugh Howey backstory thing? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, um, it, 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 it was just that it's like he wasn't like just some uh, you know overnight success where he just decided to do this thing on a whim. It's like, yeah, I mean, he he's somebody that did want to be a writer like for a really long time, and it's just that uh, this is the unusual route that he got to, to be there. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's, you know, the book is great. All of, all of the wool books are great, but then, um, he's got, uh, just a wealth of other wonderful material as well. Uh, so, I mean, he's definitely an author that you can really dive into and, uh, find a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of reading for, for, you know, many, many months or years, perhaps. 
And I guess full disclosure, uh, John and Hugh Howie yeah. have done a bunch of projects together. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I edited a couple of anthologies with him, and then um, when I had my novel in print, uh, we did uh, secure the rights to his uh, some of his self-published books, including uh, Wool and uh, Shift and Dust, the, the sequels. Um, and uh, we did his uh, first short story collection called Machine Learning, which uh, had never been published before, but the stories had. So, um, but uh, but yeah, yeah. And so John and I interviewed Hugh back in 2013. And so at the time, I read through as much of Wool as I had time to before the interview, and I read about half of it, which very conveniently was basically exactly what this show covers. So I've, <laughs> I've read exactly what this show covers and no more, so I don't know anything um, beyond that. Um, but so how about Raphael? What were your expectations going into Silo? Well, in truth, I wasn't familiar with these books, but... Um when I saw just the initial marketing, I was very excited for it because I, I just love bunkers, man. Any kind <laughs> of sci-fi or horror story set in a bunker, I am in. Um, I know I'm really weird when it comes to this stuff. Like, I would Airbnb the, the silo if I could. Yeah. I'm like, why would you even want to leave? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, Sarah knows some of my thoughts on this because I post a lot to social media. You know, I, I was initially struck by just some superficial similarities uh, between City of Ember, which I like a lot. Mm. But, you know, it's kind of a young adult film, and I always mm -hmm. wished it had been adapted into a series. So when I kind of caught wind of Silo, I was very excited because it seemed like the adult, more, you know, in-depth version. And I can't wait for season two and three. I'm tempted to read, but I kind of mm -hmm. don't want to spoil myself. So I'm not familiar with City of Ember, but it's also set in kind of a big bomb shelter and the world outside is toxic or stuff like that, or... Yeah, basically, you know, in that film, uh, Lena Mayfleet and her friend um, realize that they've been living underground. You know, they've been living underground for a few hundred years, but there's an expiration date. Um, and that's where the stories definitely diverge, because in that story, they're actively trying to find a way out. But people mm -hmm. kind of, you know, like if they don't leave, everything is going to fall apart. And I guess, you know, similarly, like there's probably a shelf life for the silo, too. But uh, no one's in any real rush to leave, seemingly. Um, but yeah, oddly enough, Tim Robbins is in both pro uh, projects. So, <laughs> you know, it kind of led some people to think, well, wait a minute, are they related? But hmm. they're not. Okay. So whenever they make a fallout movie, they got to get Tim Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it was, it was funny cause I was watching Silo this week and I was like, wow, this reminds me actually a lot of a book I read as a kid called This Time of Darkness. And I was like, I wonder if anyone's ever asked Hugh Howie if hmm. he read that as a kid. And so I Googled this time of darkness, Hugh Howie, and I found an interview where somebody asked him and he says, no, I, I never read that. But the, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a story where, uh, yeah, there's these people living in a, what they believe is a skyscraper in the future that's completely closed in because they believe the world outside is completely irradiated and toxic mm. and everything. And then at the end of, of the book, they find their way to the surface and it turns out they've been living underground the whole time without knowing it and that the world outside is fine. <laughs> um, mm. but so, so I, I read that interview and then I didn't even think much, anything else of it. And then I w went back and listened to our, uh, interview <laughs> with Hugh Howie from 10 years ago and realized actually I was the person who asked him about that book. <laughs> and I hadn't, I just sort of glanced at this interview online and <laughs> realizing it was my interview. <laughs> That's um, hilarious. But yeah, that so I mean, hilarious. these, these ideas of, yeah, like the bunkers and the yeah. toxic world and is it real and stuff, you know, these are all. You know, pretty familiar mm -hmm. um, concepts in science fiction. 
Oh, yeah. And just to be clear, you know, as, as a screenwriter myself, to me, it's always about the execution. I mean, there's mm-hmm. only so many, like, I, I'll watch a million, like, haunted ship movies, you know? <laughs> at the end of the day, a haunted ship is a haunted ship. But it's like, I'll watch that story a hundred times with different characters and different creatives, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the the story of everything in science fiction is that it's all about the execution because it's like at this point in history, almost every idea has been done in some form or another. Uh, it's really hard to come up with any kind of original ideas. Well, I mean, I guess in any genre, really, at this point, but um, I guess in science fiction, it, it feels really stale if you don't. Whereas like in other media, like, you know, or other genres, you could potentially get away with it as long as the execution is good. Um but like in, in science fiction, it's like you gotta you have to have good execution and you have to put some kind of distinct twist on it that makes it all your own, you know? So. Absolutely. And this show is so well executed and produced, and it has so many awesome twists along the way. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll get into those. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I sort of explains by implication what this show is about, but just to yeah. flesh that out a little bit more. So yeah, so it's there's the ten thousand people living in this gigantic missile silo type thing underground. And humanity has been in this thing for hundreds of years, and they know nothing really of the outside world. All their records were destroyed. And in the at some point in the past, there was this rebellion that tried to, at least this is what they believe, tried to open up the, the door to the silo, which would have killed everyone by letting all the toxic fumes and everything in. And ever since then, there's been this very strict regime uh, controlling everything that happens and to even suggest that you want to go outside is basically a death sentence and all the uh to to try to pry into the past is is also kind of a mm. forbidden and is also basically a death sentence and so the uh and and even their their uh, lack of knowledge of the outside world is so complete that we find out that they don't even know what stars are they can see mm-hmm. there's this monitor showing the the surface and they can see these lights in the sky and they don't they're sort of speculating about what they might be so they really have absolutely no idea about anything outside the silo and so the inciting incident is that there's a woman and she comes across a forbidden hard drive and finds a little uh video file which seems to show that the surface is actually green and trees and birds flying around and blue skies and stuff and this makes her uh, believe that the monitor is a lie and that they're being kept underground with lies for some sinister purpose. Um, and so, uh, so Sarah, having no uh, foreknowledge of this story at all, kind of what were your initial impressions of the show? I loved it. Like, it's, you know, it has everything. <laughs> you know, it's like the sort of classic cave allegory story. And, um, you know, the, I think stories where people are sort of in a microcosm of some sort, and they're trying to find out whether or not that's real or not will always really appeal to me because I was raised religious. And, you know, anytime you're, you're sort of raised in an environment where you're very like sheltered from other versions of reality, I think it's a really interesting question. And I think a lot of us have been raised that way in one way or another. And so I think that's one of the universal appeals um, of stories like this. There are very few of us I have met actually a few people who have, who have been raised with so much freedom and they are fascinating people. You know, they traveled a lot as babies. One of my friends, um, knew how to swim before he knew how to walk because he was raised on an island. And, you know, you, you, 
you learn, I think, through meeting people like that, how few people like that, how the rest of us really are socialized and programmed uh, by society. You know, even despite many groups' efforts otherwise, uh, we are all very much, very much programmed to believe in a specific world that we live in. And it takes a lot of imagination and actively deciding to think outside of that to sort of break free from some of those internal chains. And I uh, was immediately hooked. Like we, you know, we watched the first episode, not knowing anything, you know, going in. And I just turned to Jason like six times during the show. And I was like, this is so my jam. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love everything about this. Well, right. And I, I think this idea that, you know, what if everything you've been told your whole life is a lie is really, yeah. like you say, it has this universal appeal. And I think it's probably more um, striking if you were raised in some like, really insular yeah. religious community or something like that. But <laughs> I think that all of us, you know, we come into the world knowing absolutely nothing. And we basically just have, have to kind of trust that the people that we, who raise us and that we meet and like and love and everything are telling us, are giving us an accurate picture of reality. And it's actually really hard to know what's true mm. as a human being. And so, yeah. so explicitly one of the, um, one of the characters says, you know, this is the big, this is the question that, that matters the most is quote, what if everything you know to be true, everything you've been told by the people you love was in fact just one big lie. And I think that that's sort of the human condition in a way. I think none of us mm. can really escape, mm -hmm. uh, you know, having our picture of reality be formed by, by the, the human community that we happen to, to find ourselves in. Yeah. So, so I think the show is universal. I mean, I was not raised in an insular religious community, uh, sort of very much the opposite, but like all of this resonates, I think this resonates with me, mm -hmm. uh, too. So, and you know, speaking of the lies that are told in the show, I can't help but wonder, and I guess book readers know this, but I don't, <laughs> is, um, the whole Freedom Day revolution thing is that did that actually happen or is it just a lie, like a narrative mm -hmm. that that they're all told in, in every silo, you know, because that's just, you know, the story that's laid out to keep people in check. Yeah. So don't I mean, John, you you read how much of the series have you read? Oh, I've read all of them. OK, so don't tell us anything. Oh, I from, won't. I'll, from future I don't books. remember the answer to his question. So <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't have spoiled that one. Uh, I mean, I read them like 10 years ago. So, you know. Yeah, I ordered the books the after the first episode because I posted about it and people told me about, you know, these books that they all read 10 years ago. So I was like, OK, I'm, bo I'm on board. So I mm -hmm. ordered the books. And I noticed that they said a John Joseph Adams book. And I was like, all right, nice. all right, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get the box set that has the short story books in the back? I did not. I, they oh, did not come okay. in a box, but I got oh, the three uh, yeah. soft cover books yeah. with the nice illustrations on the front that are very like graphic of oh, the yeah, actual yeah. spirals. Yeah, oh, yeah, nice. yeah. yeah those, are, those are pretty dope. I can't yeah. wait to actually read them, but mm -hmm. I, I really love this period of not knowing and all the theory mm -hmm. videos I watch on YouTube. Yeah, I really like to do the deep dive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But yeah, so, yeah, I can, so I can I I I just I, I was just thinking of uh like when Battlestar Galactica was on and like me and Dave and and our friends we were just like we were just like uh trying to figure out everything that was going on and we were like having like these really in-depth conversations and I can only imagine like how that could have been totally ruined if it was based on books and then we could have just went and looked it up <laughs> to see what all the mysteries were um so it that's going to be a constant struggle for y'all <laughs> as you as you go through if you're trying to maintain the the show's um you know unspoiledness <laughs> Wait, yeah, so, so I'll just say, so the, the series currently consists of three books. 
uh, Wool, Shift, and Dust. I haven't, like I said, I only read the first half of Wool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Sarah, did you have you read any of those books, or you just sort of have them sitting there ready to to read later? I am almost done with the first book, and so, and I love the writing style. So I think that, and I also love the fact that it's so similar to the series. Mm-hmm. You know, so often we we read the book first, and then it, you know, a show comes out five, ten years later. And I really actually love the experience of watching a show first and then reading it because it's almost like usually the book is better, and so it's almost like mm. you get to have more of the of whatever you know story yes. that you fell in love with mm-hmm. and so i love you know very deliberately in fact i have a friend of mine who i put on the expanse series and he was like insistent that he would read the, the books first and so he's been talking to me about them before he touches the the series mm-hmm. and he's been talking to me about them and he's like you know telling me that he's not really getting into the characters that much and he's he finds the writing style very masculine and it occurred to me like oh the reason i like this is because i watched the series first i would probably have had the same impressions um you know th- i love the expanse and i love the 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 books but it does have much less of a highly descriptive poetic mm. rich way of description you know um mm. in those books and there's so much that the characters of the sh- of the series brings but anyway so you know mm. it's super fun when you do when you discover it this way when you watch the series first and then you read the books and i will probably just based on how much i'm enjoying the books i'm sure i'll be done with the third by the time the second season the show comes out and i'll know everything you know, Sarah, this is by far my most unpopular hot take because uh, I'm certainly not anti-book. But yeah, when I know I'm going to watch a show or a TV or a TV series or a movie, I do like to watch that thing first and then read because I agree. Yeah. Then reading becomes the supplemental deeper dive and you kind of have the imagery and the voices in your head. For me, I like that. And then you're not, you know, contrasting the negative aspects of the show versus the book you can enjoy both a little more i think mm-hmm. yeah, I, yeah i find it's very hard to enjoy something a show if you already read the book and really like it mm-hmm. um yeah so and so yeah, they're gonna they're gonna shorten it no matter what they do I, mm-hmm. I felt that way about about in the heart of the sea i loved the the book and i was so disappointed when the movie came out yeah. And I want yeah. to enjoy the movies and the shows. You know, I don't <laughs> want to sit there thinking, boy, the book was so much better. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll just say again, you know, but it's been like, like John, it's been 10 years since I read the book. So anything <laughs> I say comparing the book and the show should just keep in mind, I didn't even remember that I had interviewed, that I'd asked <laughs> questions. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, it's funny, uh, you know, because it had been so long since I read Wool, I, uh, after we watched the finale, I was like, Wait a minute. That's not, that is not where that is not where wool ends, right? Like, what the hell else happens in wool? And so I went and looked back at at, at my copy, and I was like, oh yeah, right. There's all this stuff. Uh, I had like <laughs> forgotten like all of that was in wool, not in the other books, you know. Um, so uh, I mean, that's a, where they stopped it is a really great place to end it for a season. So I I applaud their choice there. That's yeah. great. It's always really tricky adapting a book series because you look at Outlander, and I'm enjoying season seven, by the way, but. I think they're going to make less seasons than there than there are books, you know. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of rushing mm-hmm. now towards the finish. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, All right, but let's, like let's, ten or eleven books. Okay, well, let's let's <laughs> let's focus a little more on what happens uh, in this yeah. show. So, um, so I guess so. So Raphael, so there's there's a bit of like a like a fake out kind of thing in the first couple episodes mm-hmm. where you don't mm-hmm. know if the world outside is really you know beautiful or is it really toxic or. Like, so I, I guess, 
I mean, so, so basically what happens is that if you say you want to go outside, they put you in a suit, like a biohazard suit, and send you outside, and you're supposed to clean the camera because it accumulates toxic dust or something, and then you're supposed to just go off as far as you can. And at least in the book, this was a little more explicit in the book, but they, they claim that they're constantly trying to improve the suits, so each person typically gets a little bit farther um, than the last person, and... Um, and you always have the hope that they finally cracked the problem and you're not going to die when you go outside. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what did you think of that? Like, did you, did you have theories about what was going on or did you think it was, what did you think the world outside was like? You know, the show kept me guessing in that regard because they kind of tip their, you know, they, they show you that video pretty early on, mm-hmm. you know, when Rashida Jones figures out. You know, when she uncovers the deleted file and she sees that it's nice outside, actually, you know, you are led to think that. So I was kind of waiting for the the double twist to happen at some point. But, you know, the thing that threw me the most was simply the fact that Rashida Jones wasn't the lead of the show because mm-hmm. I hadn't really caught any of the marketing. All of a sudden, the show was just coming out and I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. Um, so I thought that was really well handled. Just the fact that, you know, she's listed first in the credits in mm-hmm. the pilot. And then all of a sudden, that's not really the case. So I mm-hmm. thought that was pretty well done. Yeah, that's the other big fake out right in the in the early episodes. Like, oh, wait, <laughs> protagonist fake out. Yeah. <laughs> and that definitely threw some of my friends for a loop. But yeah. I loved it. I thought that was. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I saw I, I watched an interview with Hugh Howie where he said it actually worked out really well because. The fact that they kill so many people off right at the beginning because hmm. they could get these amazing actors who yeah. wouldn't have been available for the entire season but could do two or three episodes and right. you know, it yeah. uh, enabled And of course, on some level, you wonder, or at least I did, if they're actually dead or if we're just mm-hmm. seeing the image of their death, you know? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I still don't really know because mm-hmm. they're... I mean, I guess by the end... I mean, we are talking fully spoilers for yeah. season yeah. one, right? Yeah. Um, I guess their bodies were there, but, you know, she couldn't see them, mm. you know? I don't know. It was it was interesting how they kind of handled that. Well, no, but I mean, at least unless, I mean, like I said, I've only read the first half of the first book, so I have no uh, information beyond what's in the show. But, you know, we know that the bodies were, you know, she puts the um, sheriff's badge thing mm-hmm. on the body. So at least unless they're in some sort of like VR thing or I don't know, something like that. It certainly seems that the world outside is a toxic wasteland. Uh, oh, for sure. Um, so uh, that's my operating assumption at the moment mm-hmm. is that the world outside is a toxic wasteland. Um, and I thought that was since, the greatest twist since of them the, all. The third book is called Dust and not uh, <laughs> Grass and Trees or something it's like, like pretty that. Pretty rainbows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, the, I did not see it coming that there was dozens and dozens of silos or at least 18 mm. of them. You know, I thought that was really cool. And uh, obviously, I want to know more about the door that George Wilkins was talking about, you know, at the very bottom, the oh, yeah. tunnels that probably interconnect it all. And when Sarah, when you mentioned swimming, you know, that's interesting. That's why these characters are so scared of water. I mean, you know, George was. He didn't want to go into the water and neither did um, Rebecca Ferguson's character, really. Because yeah, they, they've never been submerged in water like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I guess I'll just explain. So, yeah, so a couple of characters die off at the beginning thinking that maybe the world outside is not a toxic wasteland. And then we're introduced to our main character, Juliet Nichols, played by Rebecca Ferguson, who you may recognize from Mission Impossible and Dune, um, who's just terrific in this, I'll just say, mm. um, right off yeah. the bat. 
Um, but she's, uh, yeah, so, okay, so the silo is, is this very stratified society where I think there's like 144 levels and the people at the bottom are the, the manual labor, labor people who keep the, you know, the generators going and stuff like that. And then the people at the top are more like the bureaucrats and the IT professionals and stuff like that. And then, you know, in the middle is sort of merchants and, and people like that. Um, and so Juliet Nichols is one of the, she's like the key person down in mechanical who keeps the silo going. Um, and so, so Sarah, what was your, uh, initial take on, on the character of Juliet? I loved it. And I, I, you know, I have to say that I, so many science fiction shows and to some extent fantasy shows, they have a little more wiggle room with fantasy, but when I see a character who is obviously in every way not supposed to look glamorous and they make her look glamorous. It takes me entirely out of the mm. story. I just, I cannot forgive them for it in this day and age. I just can't. And the fact that she 100% looks like she's not wearing makeup all the time. The fact that her hair looks greasy and dirty most of the time. The fact that she is 100% believable in her character makes me so mm. happy. It's one of the reasons why I stopped watching the 12 Monkeys series. I could not stand what they did with the female lead there. Like she just was not, she was like professor Barbie the whole time. I could <laughs> not handle it. She, her hair was perfect mm -hmm. in every scene. No, even if she was running through and they'd like give her perfect makeup. And then they'd like put a little bit of ash on her chin. If she was in a dangerous situation, <laughs> like, come on guys. <laughs> so I, I, I just get so happy when they allow female characters like this to fully embrace who they are. 100% without a single, you know, I think they, they probably did her eyebrows and that was it. Hmm. And I was so happy about that. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, she's great. She's great in the role. I mean, she's a wonderful actress and it's, she's such a brave character. You know, she's such a, um, you know, she's a wonderful, wonderful, rich character. All of the characters in this show are great. Yeah. I mean, just, I think her in particular, her perform like if you've seen her in like Mission Impossible, like she just seems like a completely different just her mm. all her whole mm. body language and posture and and everything she yeah. just seems very sort of you know socially awkward and kind of you know not um sort of not fitting comfortably in her skin sort of she's always sort of fidgeting and mm -hmm. you know yeah um so i was really impressed by by how how much she embodied this completely different yeah. character in her in her body language, yeah, and it um, seems like she really got like lost in the role where like she just like she just really became Juliet, you know, um, and uh, yeah, and I and I, li I love how they um, you know really uh, brought everything from the book to the show, uh, making her you know making her do all of the stuff that she has to do in the book in the show, and it's like and, and it, it all works believably, like you know, uh, it's like it very easily could have uh, come off wrong because it's like well when you're trying to do all these things that you're not um, you know it's not like she was a trained uh, you know law enforcement officer, so like when she has to go do uh, you know the kinds of things law enforcement has to do, it's like you know well um, you know she's not necessarily going to be good at those things, but like they they make it all work on the show very believably, you know like. Uh, uh, obviously she's very fit having been the head engineer and all that, but, um, yeah, anyway, I just, I thought they did it really well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so what happens in the plot as John was just alluding to basically is that Juliet becomes sheriff because it's sort of, it's sort of picked to be sheriff in this very unlikely, you know, sequence of events. And she takes the job because she wants to find out what happened to her, her love interest, George, who was sort of the, 
the main person investigating the mysteries of the silo before he uh, died under mysterious circumstances. Um, and so, John, any other? How did you feel, sort of, as the first, um, you know, say the first half of the season progressed? How did you feel like it was comparing to the books, or how oh, did you? I, I mean, I love it. I love the show, and I I feel like it was very faithful. Um, like I said, I haven't read the books in in a long time, but um, it, it all evoked everything in the right way for me, so that um, I was just like completely immersed in it, and I, I wasn't like comparing it to the books in my head, you know. So that's always a really great sign. Um, and you know, the thing is like, so I was watching it with my wife, Christy, and she has not read the books and it was really funny just watching her. I mean, not quite to the extent of like when you were watching Game of Thrones with people who hadn't read the books and they, and like watching them get shocked at all of the big uh, twists and everything in that. But like, she was just like hanging on the edge of her seat from like, like the first, uh, from, you know, from the first episode and it's like, they dropped the first two at the same time. So it was like, uh, we don't always like watch two sh- two episodes of a show in a row but then when we watched the first the first one of that she was just like oh yeah we're watching the next one right um and <laughs> and it was also like um they were dropping it you know once a week after that and it's like you know we were watching that first thing as soon as we had time on fridays you know so it was like it was a appointment television um and i was right on board with it so it wasn't just that she was feeling that but um you know i mean i i, I really loved it yeah. I mean, I, I basically thought the first four episodes were perfect. I really yeah. had no complaints whatsoever uh, about the first four episodes. Um, does everyone agree with me on that? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'll admit that uh, the episodes in the middle all kind of blur together for me. Because mm-hmm. um, one thing I liked about the show was how they introduced a lot of characters. I mean, we had a lot of recurring characters, but we also lost a lot of characters. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a revol- revolving door. Um, so I'll admit, I don't mentally differentiate between like episodes three and seven a whole lot. But uh, it was all just very... Well, yeah, like, like basically, so there's this um, crotchety uh, deputy who dies... Hmm. Marns and I thought Marns, basically everything yeah. up till that was I had no problems at all like I thought everything was perfect basically up till there mm-hmm. and then in some of the episodes after that I started having some some mixed feelings about some of the stuff but I was um, sad to lose Marns and the original mayor they were great characters yeah they were so great oh my god it was so sad um but yeah so I don't know did it did everyone else feel like the show was like perfect the whole way or does anyone agree with me that they liked the first four episodes or so more than some of the stuff that happened kind of in the middle. I'm with Raphael. Like once, once something gets going like that, I think the first couple episodes feel almost like short stories because they usually ended with the death of someone. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the, 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 you know, following episode, you'd start out with a completely different character. And it's really a testament to how good the show is that it doesn't feel like, Oh, they're starting all over again. You know, oh, mm. now that everybody we knew is gone, they're starting all over again. It never feels that way. Um, but, you know, I I also tend to think of it as one long story, even though, you know, we watch them week to week. Um, and it's hard for me to distinguish between, you know, once, especially once everything got going with Juliet. Um, right. To me, that at that point, it becomes this much longer, all one big story. Yeah, to be honest, I don't really differentiate them by 10 episodes. I kind of think of the first season as three acts. Mm. You know, act two was the longest, and that was once Juliet becomes sheriff and she's doing her investigation. And act three is once they turn against her and she's just on the run. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that the the show is like perfect by any any means. Like, I don't know that I would say that about any show. I mean, anything that I watch, even when I love it, like I'll I'll find like little things here or there that I'm like, oh well, you know, maybe I could quibble about this or that. But I mean, uh, any complaints I had about this show were like so minor that like, you know, I I don't know that I could think of them <laughs> as we're talking about it. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the first four episodes are super super strong, so I can see why you would say that. Um. But uh, I, I'm kind of curious, like what what your uh, sort of qualms were about uh, w- once we got to that point. Yeah, what specifically bumped you, David? Because like uh, I guess yeah. at no point did something take me out of my just pure enjoyment of the show. I, I did really love it. Like appointment viewing, as John said the whole time. <laughs> Although, well, it's also interesting because like Dave, you like you you binged it, right? Like you watched it all at once. Whereas I think yeah. the, the rest of us all watched it episodically as it was released on Fridays. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So I, I wonder if that might be something that you noticed because you were watching it all at once that we maybe wouldn't have picked up on because it was weekly or something. But yeah, well, and this this is, you know, getting back to what I was saying about comparing the book to the movie. And and I loved the book. I mean, for years, I've been recommend anytime someone says, oh, what's a good oh, you do a science fiction podcast. What's a good <clears throat> science fiction book? I should read. I've, I've very often said, whoa, even though I only read the first half of it, but the first half was so good. I was like, I'm sure the rest of it's uh, mm-hmm. great, you know? Um, so it's something I really, really liked. And one thing I really liked about it was how like sort of tight and fast paced it was. And with the show, I felt like once we got into the second half, I felt like there were a lot of um, characters and a lot of plot lines and, um, I sort of I sort of felt like they were maybe in a bit of a tough spot where I think if they had done tried to do the entire first book it would not really have fit into one season and so they're like okay well we're just going to do half of the first book but then that wasn't really enough to fill up 10 episodes hmm. and um you know we know even I know that in the second season they go to a completely new uh, silo that has presumably completely new characters so it doesn't really make for just some of the budget and you know practicalities of television hmm. it makes sense to leave that to save that for the next season um but i felt like they were clearly faced with the problem of you know how do we take this this first half of the book that's maybe like five episodes worth of material and expand it out to 10 episodes mm-hmm. and i felt like you know they were clearly fleshing things out and going into detail about these you know, minor characters like uh, Billings' wife and, you know, Juliet's dad and stuff like that, mm. that I was not always super uh, invested in. I, I could meet you halfway, David, and say like eight episodes worth of material stretched to 10. Mm. But mm-hmm. I, I admit, I just loved every second of being in the silo because I'm such a, I don't know, when I'm watching something and I really like the environment, it's why I like Tron Legacy so much. I just like the environment, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that you notice, like now that I'm reading the books, is that you really, you know, I have so much respect for these people making this show because you the things that they did change were changed for a reason. And, mm. you know, like the, the gender of walk, for instance, mm-hmm. the, the relationship between walk and Jules is beautiful. And she's kind of the surrogate mother figure for her and, you know, is willing to do so much for her. And it's, 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 uh, you know, and that was so totally different in the books. Um, and then they, the one they had one episode you're talking about the tension of of the show dave and we you, the one, they have the one episode where they repair the generator and that is 
you know, the whole episode, you're just like glued to your couch with your fingernails dug into mm. the, you know, you, it's so good. That one episode is so good. And it, the books is almost trivial. They just sort of mention it in passing that she repaired this thing mm. and it wasn't this big thing. And so they very much up the, the stakes to repair that, but they, they knew you know, they had such a good sense of what to change on purpose. Um, and, you know, otherwise everything is so similar in the books. But, you know, just that, like, the the repairing of the generator was so boring in the books comparatively. <laughs> and in the series, it was just like, you know, you're just gripping. You're just absolutely, you know, fully enveloped and fully invested in in this huge machine, you know, and how how dangerous it is and this precarious situation that they're all in. And it's it's wonderful. I agree. That's a great example of, you know, that whole episode was riveting and it could have just been part of an episode. But I appreciated that they, you know, gave us a little more and mm-hmm. Of course, you know, we get into perverse incentives of why there's always more episodes than fewer. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> You're going to make as many as they'll let you make. That's what it comes <laughs> down to. Well, the, the fixing the generator thing, I mean, I was basically in tears at that part. Mm. I mean, you know, but that was episode three, I think. That was part of the the stretch where I thought this show's perfect. Like, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, I, I, it sort of felt like. Yeah, one of my one of my issues was kind of that it felt like the show was maybe sort of padded out a little bit more than mm. it than it needed to be. I think like, you know, John was mentioning Battlestar Galactica and I feel like, you know, there's people who liked the ending. You had this thing, you know, Ugh. when Lost and Battlestar Galactica were going on mm-hmm. where they introduced all these mysteries and then basically didn't pay any of them off at all. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, and then you had people who liked the endings of those shows because they said, well, no, because I really cared about the characters and I felt like the characters all had sort of satisfying emotional journeys. And then you had people like me who were like, I didn't really care that much about the characters. <laughs> I wanted to know the solutions to the mysteries and I felt completely cheated. Mm-hmm. And Look, Lost think- wasn't satisfying for anybody, okay? Anybody mm-hmm. who says it was satisfying is lying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, i <laughs> that's how I see things, but yeah. I, I have talked to people who... Who may be lying, but who claim that it was satisfying because they like. I think it's like sto- like Stockholm syndrome. It's kind yeah. of like they feel like they, yeah. they care about the characters so much that they're yeah. just willing to accept the fact that they were, you know, just look the other way and pretend mm-hmm. that they were not greatly, you know, underserved. Yeah, we're not lying to you. We're just lying to ourselves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but so so but my 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 broader point is that I feel like there's just you know there's there's shows that you know, sort of introduce mysteries. And I think different um, members of the audience can relate to those shows in different ways. And I'm mm-hmm. someone who I, I, I really care more about like, you know, what is the world like the, uh, outside the silo really like? Like, why was the silo built? You know, like what mm-hmm. what happens? What's, what's the truth about, like Raphael was saying, the truth about this story yeah. with the revolt and everything. And I feel like we didn't really find out anything about any of those things. Mm-hmm. You know, for in the second half of the season, it was kind of all character development. And at yeah. least personally to my taste, I feel like there needs to be more of a balance between, mm. um, you know, revealing pieces of the mystery and developing the characters. If the whole sort of fundamental thrust mm. of the show is is built around presenting you with this, this right. compelling mystery. I mean, that's fair. Um, and without any spoilers from the books, I'll, I'll just say, like, I, I do feel like the, the mysteries that the, the solutions to the, or the, the truth about these mysteries is satisfying. It, you know, it, assuming they, I mean, I imagine they'll keep the same answers from the books, but, um, 
So at least we have the we have that security blanket, unlike with uh, some of these others, like with like Lost and Battlestar Galactica, where it's like, well, they're clearly writing this and producing it as they go along, and they don't really know where it's going. Where it's like, <laughs> okay, well, we know we know uh, Hugh knew where he was going, or at least he figured it out along the way, and it's already been established where he's going. It's already there. There's a roadmap. Uh, so I'm confident that at least the show won't uh, won't fumble that. But um, but yeah, I hear what you're saying, uh, and I and yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why the last episode is like so, uh, like I thought was so amazing, is because like you know we do get really back to like one of the essential mysteries, and and you know our, our main character goes outside, <laughs> you know, yeah. and and learns all kinds of new stuff right at the end, <laughs> like right in the last five minutes. No, yeah, the ending I thought was fantastic. Do you think fanta- you would feel fantastic. differently, uh, Dave? Do you think you would feel differently if if the, if the mysteries that they did solve at the end of season one were done with a little more drama, because I feel like, you know, the thing with the tape, um, that was mm. a huge recurring theme and it ended, you know, you, you almost it, blink and you miss it. Like you, mm-hmm. you had to really piece it together after you're done watching. There was no huge reveal where you're like, ah, that is why she's able to walk over the hill. You know, there is, but it's just so done so subtly. And I think it's done yeah. subtly because they're being poetic about it. And you appreciate the subtlety, but you, you can also understand why people would want, you know, certain people were asking, mm-hmm. explain to me the ending, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely, because I mean, I obviously I knew all that from the book, but mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. I don't see how people who hadn't read the book would right. really put this together. Because it, yeah, I, I felt like, yeah. at least in my memory, the tape was a huge deal in the book. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it seems like very, very minimal in the in the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. So, like as I mentioned, like Christy hadn't read the books, and so, uh, you know, she was very invested in this the the stuff with the tape because she was she was trying to figure out why they why they kept talking about it and everything, and she was trying to figure out what was going on with the suits. And in the last episode, yeah, like I don't like she she wasn't all the way there in terms of like what happened with the tape and why she was able to uh you know get over the hill. And so like we started talking about it, and like oh, and of course I remembered from the books that part at least that it's like oh well no that's the reason why she's able to to get because like walks up you know substitutes a tape or whatever um that's what they meant by like you know supply whatever they said about supply like supplies on board or whatever they said you know uh like supplies got us covered they're gonna give you the good tape um because i you know i guess they 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 like sabotage the tape or something to make sure that people would die when they go out there is that the that's like the gist of it right yeah yeah, yeah. So we find out what what happens in the book, as I remember it, is that basically, you know, they're they're pretending that they're trying to fix to make the suits better all the time, but they're intentionally sabotaging them mm-hmm. to fail. And part of this is that they have this tape that's designed to just burn up quickly or yeah. to fall apart quickly or something. And, and that's so why they. Some, oh yeah, go ahead. Well, so at, at some point before the story starts, Juliet had stolen some mm-hmm. of their tape because she needed tape. And then it was like shitty tape. And she's like, I can't believe how shitty their tape is over in IT. Mm -hmm. And then by the end, they've put it together. Oh, it's intentionally shitty for this very specific reason. And that's, and that's why, and that's why Bernard is so pissed at her when she steals the tape and they make such a big deal about it. It's like, oh, well, what's the big deal? She just took some tape, you know? Um, but it's like, that's why. Because <laughs> it's like, there's a lot of secrecy <laughs> around that tape. It's really important that nobody understands what the truth about that tape is. Yeah, I actually thought that was pretty well done because the first yeah. few times they mentioned the tape early on in the show, you think, why is this being mentioned so much? And then mm-hmm. you kind of forget about it for a while. And then when it all comes together, you're like, oh, okay, that was pretty clever. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and you hadn't read the book and you thought it was clear to you watching the show. 
Raphael? Uh, it was. It became clear to me in that moment, one of those things where I thought to myself, oh, I should have seen that coming. Mm. But, you know, uh, for whatever reason, I didn't <laughs> I didn't see it coming. So I thought mm. it was, yeah, I thought it was well done. Mm. Yeah, I mean, even having read the books and, like, you know, not remembering them well so from having read them so long ago, like, I had to piece it together as I was going along. And like I said, like, Christy hadn't pieced it together uh, entirely. But, like, yeah, I... I I felt like it that could have been clear, um, like what happens with the tape, but um but yeah. So I, I'm definitely sympathetic to people who who hadn't read the books and, and didn't quite figure it out and, and I can understand why there's people, you know, asking about it online and stuff. Well, mm. it's funny because Walk, first of all, was such a great character, and it was mm-hmm. only in that moment that it that did it crystallize for me. You know, mm-hmm. she goes, Well, it doesn't make sense unless it does. And before mm. she even said the words, unless it does, I got there, yeah. you know? So I, th- yeah, I thought yeah. that was the intent between, mm-hmm. with that line and that delivery. Yeah. Yeah. And so then like my other sort of thing that kind of bugged me in the show is that I felt like Juliet was often sort of um, self-sabotaging or, um, you know, like just not getting along with people around her in a way that just, I didn't understand what her motivation Mm. was. And I'm totally fine with characters, you know, not being perfect or having, you know, abrasive personalities or whatever. But it it felt like a problem to me that I'm like, just what is like, in her mind, why is she doing this? I mean, she's in this like life or death situation. um, And she's just like, you know, she's, she has all these, um, like sheriff's deputies around her and stuff. And she's just like not making any effort whatsoever. It seems like to get along with them. And, uh, it just, it just seems sort of odd to me. Um, yeah. I, I, I really liked that about her character though, because in part of it, because, you know, we, we sort of, it's, it's the antithesis of, of the gender socialization, right? It's, it, mm. she is the opposite of how women are trained to be. And for her to be in environments like that, you know, so many times I just, turned to Jason, you know, and I was just like, she's got some balls. And I, (laughs) you know, I, I loved the fact that it, and it was just sort of, it fit to me more naturally with her character, especially because she was such a, a strong person and so brave that I feel like if she hadn't had an abrasive quality, her character wouldn't have made sense. She would be too perfect. You know, she would just have been, if she had also known, oh, now I'm supposed to try to be friends with this woman who works just under me, who doesn't like me for whatever reason. Um, or if she had, you know, had more of a, a goal, she just, her whole deal is she cares so much about the truth that she doesn't give a fuck about anything else. And I think that, you know, that especially also because she lost the people in her life that really did matter to her, you know, and, and the situation with her mom was truly shattering her, yeah. um, that she, you can, you can see why she is the way that she is. And I think there's also even just one additional aspect. I mean, you're right. I, I loved how her characterization was consistent with the abrasiveness and it made sense with her backstory. Mm-hmm. I also think she didn't realize until the end of episode eight in just how much danger she really was. You know, she yeah. was basically trying to get to the bottom of that mystery, but I don't think it really ever clicked in her mind that she was basically putting herself, you know, in the <laughs> at high risk to go outside herself because mm-hmm. the conspiracy was bigger than she ever imagined. Yeah, I love her scene when she or her performance when she realizes that uh, Bernard is is the bad guy and he's the one mm. who had those people killed. You know, the look of genuine shock on her face that was so like innocence depleting. And I think that of everything that she knew about, she was very ignorant in terms of how 
political machinations work. And, mm-hmm. you know, that she was learning all of that brand new. And she was just sort of with as much as she knew and as strong as she was, in some ways, she was extremely naive. And that moment that other actors might have even made comical, uh, you know, she handled it so well. It was really beautiful. Mm-hmm. I agree completely because in that moment, are we talking about when she's down in the field and she has that, you know, basically he says, did you just, did I just hear you say you want to go outside? And instead of saying something to him like, oh, you son of a bitch, she panics. Like she, she switches to panic mode. She's like, oh no, 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 I didn't. (laughs) Yeah. She was naive up until that moment. I think only then did she realize just how deep this went. Yeah. I just, I have a hard, I have a hard time with the idea that someone who grew up their whole life in this society where you say, like, I want to go outside and it's an instant death sentence. You know, you're caught with a Pez dispenser. It's like an instant death sentence that she would not realize the danger she was in while investigating the death of her love interest, who she knows was murdered or at least believes was murdered. It's just like, how is she, you know, granted that if she sort of, you know, has this, you know, she, she's not great at reading social cues or mm-hmm. has an abrasive personality or whatever, but it's like, how, how could she not be really conscious of the danger that she's in given like the five people who had this job before her have all died in the last, mm. you know, a couple <laughs> last week or two. Well, I think she knew that, you know, she was in a, a bureaucratic bullshit situation, right? She knew that, but I th- I think that, you know, she did not know that she was in a evil authoritarian uh, bureaucratic bullshit situation where you have, you know, the, the Bernard's character kills, uh, the mayor and Marnes simply for going over him and saying, you know, it's ours, it's ours to choose who sheriff is ultimately. And for that, he killed them. And I, I think that she would never have been able to put something like that together herself. Yeah. I mean, there was just, there's a moment in the story where, uh, cause I could sort of, I could sort of believe that she just she cares so much about the truth and she doesn't even care how much danger she's in. Although that was a little weird to me, too, because she knows how vital she is to the operations mm-hmm. of the silo where she says, you know, mm-hmm. I have the most important job in the silo. She basically seems to be the only person who can keep the generator running. So if something happens to her, you know, that seems really bad, like really bad news for the for all 10,000 people in the silo, which is sort of. A, a factor that you think maybe they would have taken into account when deciding to send her out of the silo. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there's this, a part where, you know, she talks to, so George is her love interest who was murdered and who was investigating the mysteries. And she talks to his ex-girlfriend and the ex-girlfriend says, Oh, he was just using me to help him figure out the mysteries. And he's just using you for the same reason. And, um, and Juliet, she calls um, walk and says, basically like, he hasn't who I thought, he was, um, I'm just coming home. And that's that really seemed discordant to me with this idea that she cares so much about the truth. And like, I don't know, it just seems like a weird moment to me where I wasn't sure, again, like exactly how to triangulate her, her motivations and her, um, you know, priorities, I guess. Mm. Uh, John? What do you you think about all this? 
Uh, well, I mean, uh, I think you're making some fair points. Uh, uh, I mean, I kind of, uh, as you were talking, I was kind of thinking like, oh, well, maybe she just ran out of fucks. You know, it's like, uh, you know, you get to a certain point and, and you know, you're dealing with all this uh, bullshit and it's like you just want to get some answers. You want to find, you know, uh, I mean, especially once you lose a love interest, uh, even if, you know, as she's investigating, she she finds out some things that, you know, upset her and things like where, you know, like she says, uh, she, she, he's not who she thought he was and all that. Um, but um, but, you know, it's like I think it's uh, it's it's really complicated. You know, you get pulled, you know, she's a she's like the fish out of water character where, you know, she gets pulled out of the, the environment that she knows and gets thrust into this other uh, completely alien environment to her. Um, and uh, so, I mean, yeah, I think it's just, uh, you know, I don't know. It's just a choice, uh, a character choice that, uh, you know, uh, I think it works yeah. for a lot of people. It didn't, didn't work for you as well, Dave, but um, it, it doesn't it didn't bother me. Um, although I, I, I get, I get your points. Yeah. And I think that, you know, she, she, the moment that she decides that she's in over her head is when she decides, fuck it, I'm going back to mechanical, you Mm -hmm. know, and she realizes I don't want to be part of this world at all. And this world may in fact not be the way that I find out the truth about what happened. Um, you know, it's funny, like we're rewatching a few episodes and, um, the moment where she, where walk, you know, kind of says, well, why are you giving up? You know, you, you, why are you giving up so easily, basically? And then you might, my partner sort of joked up, oh, walks the one that, you know, sent her to her death sentence, because if she had given up at that time, she might be okay. Um, but I do think that, you know, it's, for me, it worked, uh, that, mm. you know, it's all part of kind of who she was, mm-hmm. um, you know, in that she had a good balance of, being this very brave character to a little too brave. And the fact that mm-hmm. they tied it to her mother being the same way. Mm-hmm. Once she starts unraveling things, she does get overwhelmed and she's like, fuck, you know, this is way beyond anything that I, that I thought it was going to be. Yeah. She does vacillate, you know, after she finds out, you know, when she believes that George was never truly in love with her, she does adopt the fuck it mentality but then you know the episode uh i think called hannah no maybe the flame mm-hmm. keepers you know where she mm-hmm. where she's shown the book i mean that brings her back in like the georgia travel book yeah so i thought that kind of revitalized her motivation to want to get to the bottom of it after all uh, you know it's funny just in passing uh like when you started talking about her being abrasive for for no reason and not you know sort of getting along with the with the people in the sheriff's department i actually had the thought about the person who was like holston's assistant or like whatever like his 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 like whoever like whoever was like the admin for for the sheriff's office cuz like when julia came in she was just so hostile like and i was like why are you like jeez like meet her or something like i mean she's just like she was just like hated her for replacing holson it's like she didn't make him go out to clean um right. but uh i i just thought that part was kind of funny cuz like i had that thought about that about that person she was a memorable character too you know yeah, what yeah, i was saying yeah. a lot of characters <laughs> kind of came and went in the first half of the season that was one of them yeah, and it may be a thing where if I were to watch it again, a lot of times, you know, those sorts of difficulties, if you watch it a second time, you're kind of like, oh, I don't know why this bothered me the first mm-hmm. time. Like now mm-hmm. I sort of, it sort of clicks for me. But I, I do feel like maybe like if we just, maybe if there was a little more time spent with the people around her who know what her mm-hmm. personality quirks are, just kind of talking about them. And yeah. so we sort of know like, okay, this is, inten- you know, this is intentional um, that she's like this. This isn't yeah. just sort yeah. of an odd writing choice or something. Yeah. You know, also to Sarah's point. Of, oh, go ahead. 
or I can't remember who mentioned it, but you know, it is different when you consume something you know, all at once versus week to week, because even with films, you watch them back to back to back instead of over the course of, you know, years when they come out, you notice stuff that, and it, some things might bother you that they wouldn't otherwise, you know, it's just some things can seem repetitive or less consistent when viewed all at once, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, you know, uh, what you're saying, though, Dave, is 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 definitely true. Is like, you know, Juliet doesn't get a lot of, uh, you know, sort of downtime to to like let you experience what she's like when she's not like hardcore pursuing the truth. You know, uh, it's like that. That's almost all of her scenes is her just like hardcore pursuing the truth. So we don't get a lot of that uh, other uh, sort of character, um, you know, interrogation that we might be able to uh, suss out like these issues you're having. Yeah, one of the things that I really liked about, you know, I, I think that George, she, he's kind of symboli- symbolized her willingness to let somebody in. And she, the, the instant she lets somebody in and she has what, you know, seems almost like her first relationship, um, her first romantic relationship, really, uh, you know, she loses him in this way, the same way that she lost her mom. And so I think the obsession comes down to, you know, her being unsatisfied with whatever narrative she's given and because the you know george would have died in or was was she heard that he died the same way that her mom died Mm. she was just like no i this no longer i'm no longer willing to accept this but i think that one of the things that i was so impressed with with this show in general was the attention to detail because they you know if you notice the the characters that they had down deep shirley and knox they showed who Shirley and Knox were as children and that they grew up together that way. And the, it, it, uh, it pleased me so much that the show bothered to cast people who looked like mm. teenage versions of Shirley and Knox, mm-hmm. you know, when they were only going to have two minutes of screen time. They could have yeah. just been random extras who were randomly down there, you know, kids who randomly worked there at that time. But they very deliberately was like, no, these are going to be Shirley and Knox. And we're going to show that she grew up with these people from teenagers. And I, I loved that, that, that level of detail. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I mean, all the production design stuff was great on this show, yeah. like the sets and the costumes. Mm-hmm. and, and Yeah, you know, David, to be honest, if out of the whole season, there was only one moment that kind of jumped out to me as something that, you know, was a little head scratching. Uh, you know, when she basically lets herself fall through the trash mm-hmm. chute, you, know, oh. all the, you mm-hmm. know, and it's like she would have been crushed a split second later if not for people pulling her out of the way. Mm-hmm. I thought that was maybe like not a great choice. I would have just stood my ground. You better chance that it just passes you by. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there was some, I had some issues with the trash shoot thing. I mean, just like, I I would just think it would be a constant issue. People using those for smuggling or Mm -hmm. kids playing in them or stuff like that. Whereas the people seem sort of surprised, like no one's ever done this before. And, uh, yeah. So I, and also it seems like I was just reading this online. This didn't actually, make much of an impression on me watching the show, but it seems like she had to have, have climbed like down a hundred levels on that ladder at, at one point fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I don't know. There was some, some logistics stuff there, but I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to be too negative because I think the show is so great mm-hmm. overall. Um, but yeah, so yeah, um, I, think, I think Paul, uh, Paul Billings was such yeah. a great character because he demonstrated what most of the people in the silo were like you know, where he was very much about the rules and had a really hard time, um, you know, with 
operating outside of them. Like one of the most heartbreaking scenes is when he decides he's going to burn that book. You know, mm-hmm. he's going to be sort of an anti oath keepers or whatever they called themselves. Um, you know, where he was going or flame keepers. Flame keepers. Um, yeah. <laughs> he was going to do the exact opposite thing. Instead of mm-hmm. saying people need to see this, he, he was like, no, this needs to be destroyed. And I think that the, you know, the question that the show, one of the questions that the show is asking is, you know, how many people would just bo- obey and do as they were told and how rare what would it have been for characters to to behave like jewels you know i think at one point it was sort of one of the characters says i was surprised that they allowed you know your mother to have a child um because Mm. this idea i you know i don't i don't think obviously literally i don't think that that people are that that's genetics right i don't think that that genetics determines uh whether or not you are a rule breaker but you know that uh that most people in the silo are given very good reasons to stay in line and do what they're told. Yeah, I, I really liked that Billings, you know, was like the spelling bee champ basically <laughs> when it came to uh yeah. reciting the rules of the pact. <laughs> that was a nice sort of world world building detail. And also the um when the mayor gives the speech, I forget what the the um holiday was called, like Freedom, Freedom Day, Day or something like that. Yeah. Um that seems like there was there was I thought good world building stuff with that where they made the silo feel like a you know sort of a functional place with its mm-hmm. own rhythms and um traditions and definitely you know, ways of doing things. Although funny enough that's probably one of the only scenes where for a minute I was thinking wait a minute there's like three levels tops that can hear what she's saying. <laughs> There's 144 levels. She's not even using a microphone. Come on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, who cares what those people down in mechanical? Yeah. <laughs> um, other uh, other strong points about the show. Anyone wants to mention things you really liked? You know, I loved a moment in the final episode when um, when Juliet's speaking in her cell to uh, Tim Robbins. I forget his character name. And uh, she mentions the tunnel. And you can tell with a quick look on uh, Tim Robbins' face, he didn't know about it. He knows mm-hmm. everything, but he didn't know about that. But he recovers very quickly and moves on. And then he goes and he tries to recover what's left of the drive. And we do see that there's one drive of the two still intact. He, like he might be able to find out a little more next season. Because I know next season we're going to follow Juliet's character, but I also assume that we're going to stick around in mm-hmm. Silo 18 and you know with Tim Robbins in common a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, it, he clearly thinks he's doing the right thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. he clearly thinks he has to knock off these people or else it's going to... I think he says, like, like everyone in the silo will die if I let you poke into these mysteries. So, um, I mean, that's kind of interesting that he's not just a an evil character who wants to hurt people or get power or something, but he's he seems to be just mortally afraid, like legitimately terrified that... Something bad is going to happen if uh, if all. Well, this I think he's isn't- he's sort of both, right? Like he's he's you know whether or not he has a good reason, he clearly has let it get to his head, and he's gotten way too obsessed with the power, and you know way too authoritarian in the way that he un- unfolds those rules and and you know enforces those rules. And so even in the end, when you see you know the world is actually as desolate as they say, and you start to think, well, gee, maybe they you know, have good reasons for these things, you know, they clearly 
have gone way too far and lost the plot and gave way too much power to certain individuals and, you know, um, are are not trusting people with the truth on some level for for reasons. And so I think that, you know, we're meant to sort of question, even when you have good reasons, and even when you're trying to protect people, you can still decide to be an asshole about it or not. You know, that's sort of the biggest mystery at the moment, isn't it? You know, why go through the whole song and dance of the simulation and the cleaning, all that, you know, if the world truly is desolate, and that's Mm. what we believe, yeah, I, I don't really see why they're going through the whole thing. Like, why lie about the lie, you know? Yeah, well, it sort of makes, so what they do is they they project this beautiful scene on the visor of the people going outside because they want them to clean off the camera, I guess, to emphasize how, so people can clearly see how bad things are outside. So that kind of makes sense to me. Well, but is that really the full reason? I mean, couldn't they have just installed a little windshield wiper? (laughs) (laughs) I do do understand the the logic of that, and and it is clever. It's like people are constantly trying to show to the people inside that it is nice. But they could also just, like, mouth it, couldn't they? If that was the whole, I I don't know. I'm almost surprised at how non-communicative the people on the outside are. Like, you, they'd be like... You know, like ge- gesturing broadly and wildly. Yeah. Hey, it's nice out here, guys. Right, but but so so I mean, all that kind of makes sense. The thing that's weird, like you're saying, is that there has to be some explanation for why that. You know, if the world outside really is shitty and nobody could possibly survive, and if we open up the door, we're all going to die. If that's the truth, then like, why do they have to lie about anything? Why do they have to suppress? <laughs> anything right right so so there must be something about that that's misleading right um, and that, that so makes tim robbins a, mu- a more sympathetic figure than say um his counterpart <laughs> in city of ember like bill murray knew they could go out but he still didn't want them to because he wanted to hold on to power hmm. so you know this is more interesting because i still don't know really what the hell's going on uh, you said, Raphael, that people, you've seen like online, like crazy online speculations or? Uh, I've watched a few YouTube videos, but mostly, honestly, they were theories kind of, you know, week to week, people were theorizing about what was going on. And actually, by the end, a lot of it was disproven. I mean, you know, most fan theories are wrong anyway. What was, can you think of an example of something that was disproven? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, because... There's been other similar shows like that sci-fi series Ascension. So I think people were thinking, well, maybe they're on a spaceship or maybe it's all a simulation or it's aliens, you know. Uh, So they had some pretty wild theories. In the end, it's really just that there's a whole bunch of underground bunkers and the, the Earth is desolate, I'm assuming. I mean, unless it really is something completely outside the box. Yeah, I don't know. So why... But but yeah, it is really like why did they build eighteen or whatever of these things all right next to each other and make people believe that they're the only one or like why can't people I think that's know what why stars it's are? Fun to think about, right? Like mm-hmm. it's fun to think about how if you know if we were going to create that kind of situation, how would we organ- how would we structure the societies? Because we would want people to survive. We would want, and it might be something as simple as. You know, they found earlier silos found that people could not handle reminders of what they had lost, right? Mm. People could not handle, um, you know, having access to videos and photos of oceans and, 
and beautiful sky and birds and things like that. They just could not handle it because people would just go crazy. Mm. And so it might be something as simple as, you know, we are, we have learned that we have to just sort of raise people in this environment and treat them like there's no, there's nothing else. This is, this is the world. This, you know, this, this sort of Bauhaus aesthetic, uh, <laughs> you know, brutalist, um, environment is, is, is the earth. And, and, you know, they're sort of told mythically there used to be something else, but we, they, they don't get to see what it is because, you know, maybe psychologically people just couldn't handle it. Yeah. There is something almost depressingly realistic about the founder's scheme, because I think, yeah, if the earth is uninhabitable and this plan is to basically make people content with living underground for as long as possible, separating the silos makes sense because it limits the amount of variables that can go wrong. I mean, sure, they expect some silos to fail, but all of a sudden, if they're all interconnected, then you've got wars, you know, more, you know, just people not getting along, disasters, who knows? Well, it could. I mean, I really like that idea, Sarah. That that they, they, they that if people that the only reason that living in a silo is tolerable at all is because you can't really imagine anything better. And if you start imagining a better life, then everything goes to hell. I think that's a really cool idea. And it might even be the case that each silo has a different level of you know. And some of them they they were allowed to know about oceans and stars, and those ones fell into total anarchy and. You know, it's like it's like an experiment with, you know, like 18 different, you know, groups. And you can see which, you know, they're trying to engineer a way for people to actually stand living under these conditions and trying different stabs at it. Am I the only one that wants to live in the silo? Am I just that weird? (laughs) (laughs) There is something really appealing in it. And I think it comes down to that, you know, the the production design and everything. Because I love I love the idea that the world that that that, you know, we Gen X grew up in becomes its own permanent little microcosm. And that, you know, the way that technology, a piece of technology, for instance, existed in the 70s or 80s, just would exist in perpetuity and would never get Mm. um, upgraded. And they're not constantly trying to create new technology. They just continue to use these same things over and over again. It's I think it's really appealing for us because we grew up in sort of the last vestiges of the analog world, you know, where we would have seen things like that and used things like that. And then when the internet arrived, everything changed. And so, you know, I remember my childhood as this very different planet that we all lived on Mm -hmm. than what we have now. And I often wonder, is that something that just happens every, every, you know, generation or two? Or is there something unique to this pre-internet existence that we were sort of given the last taste of, you know? You know, Sarah, I love that term that we stumbled upon on Facebook, I believe, cassette yeah. futurism, <laughs> yeah. the genre oh of God. retro futurism based on the 70s and 80s. Yeah, it's great. So into it. <laughs> I mean, I would not want to live in the silo because I would get so sick of looking at those stairs, like <laughs> the exact same <laughs> stairs, like every like level after level after level after level. Especially if you have to walk, since you have to walk. But don't you want to find out how long it would take you to walk all 144 levels? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, something like not being allowed to use lifts, I honestly think that it would make sense that they might do something like that simply because um, they wanted to make sure that people got some measure of exercise. You know, like if you're living in this tiny enclosed space, you know, and you're not 
uh, you're not able to, you know, they probably realized like people are a lot less likely to go stir crazy if they can kind of exercise and move around in their environment. Also, I think it speaks to the separation of people. You know, just like you want to keep the silos mm. separated to yeah. some degree, you've forced separation on the levels because who's really going to make that trek all the time? Yeah, yeah I actually yeah. saw an interview with Hugh where he he answered that question. So sort of spoiler, but um, yeah, he said it was basically just to, another means of control that mm-hmm. it's hard to get a riot going that overthrows the government when you have to walk up 140 levels <laughs> to do it. You know, whereas if you could take the elevator, uh, it would be a lot more likely to for that to happen. Yeah, it's all a system of control. That's funny, David. Last time I was on your show was for Matrix Resurrections. It's always about a deep underground civilization. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to get John back in here. John, any uh, any thoughts you've been having uh, during all this? Oh, I mean, you know, thoughts that have come and gone, been long since forgotten during all the conversation. But um, yeah, no, anything no else you you liked about the show you want to mention? Um, well, I mean, uh, just getting back to Billings, uh, who I feel like uh, maybe we didn't talk about enough because he's a great character, but um, I, I really like the way the relationship between him and Jules develops, like, because, you know, they start off uh, kind of on the wrong foot. I mean, largely because Jules is so prickly, but, um, uh, you know, I, I really like the way they sort of work it all out and, and eventually, like, you know, uh, as Sarah was saying, you know, it's like he, he eventually uh, makes that difficult choice to burn that book and it's like, you know, to protect jewels like it can't be found in her apartment certainly um and uh you know so it's like uh, yeah it, it's just like they go a long way together um and i, I and i really i love that actor i thought like he brought a lot to the role so um yeah i just want to shout out billings mm-hmm. do people have a sense of how well this show is doing i mean it, it sounds yeah. like it's doing really well i mean i heard hugh howie say this is the number one drama that yeah. apple has done um, he said Stephen King has been tweeting yeah. about it a lot. Yeah, I assume um, it's been doing fantastically well since it was, you know, like the number one show on Apple. So, um, you know, I don't know how it was doing uh, compared to other streaming networks or anything. I don't know if anybody else does, but uh, it, I know it was already renewed for season two. And I believe they have a four season plan. Yeah. I feel like it's been taking off slowly. You know, there wasn't a ton of social media chatter about it at first, but it got really good reviews and just word of mouth kept. I mean, I was certainly trying to do my part. I think that's why I'm here today. I kept posting about it. This is my new favorite show in a long time. Yeah. I'll say last time I checked, it was 88% on Rotten Tomatoes, both the critics and the, you know, fans or whatever. So, um, yeah, it seems. I'm, I'm, the thing is, like, when you say something is the number one drama on Apple TV, I don't have a good sense of how good that is, like you're saying overall. Like does yeah. this does that mean there's definitely gonna be four seasons or or not? You right. know? Well there's definitely gonna be two, at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they started uh, relatively early. Like I think that they, you know, didn't like you know, based on what I've read from how far they are in development of season two, it seemed like they greenlit two seasons in one go. Uh <clears throat> because uh, you know, and again, this right. really speaks to why Apple is, you know, uh, make it the only streamer that I'm not pissed at right now. I'm pissed <laughs> at HBO. I'm pissed as fuck at Netflix, you know, and, and it's so dumb to put all of this money into, into mm. making these shows and to not give them a chance 
and then to not even allow people to, you know, to, to view them, to decide that it's, it's worth more to them to not have to pay the writer's residuals yeah. or whatever, than to, you know, have them up for people to enjoy them. Because how many shows, I mean, we've, we've had examples of shows and, and movies that, had a very slow build and then became cult classics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it sometimes it just doesn't happen in the first two weeks, damn it. And often the better the show is, the more likely it's going to have that slow burn. Mm. Absolutely. Because, I mean, you look at some shows that just ended, like Succession. I mean, it was always popular, but it really didn't become a phenomenon, I don't think, till season three or four. Mm. Have you seen, Sarah, a lot of discussion of the show? online like what are like how much buzz would you say that it's been getting a little bit but not much at all like you know i i feel much in the same way of uh the other one that we talked about on apple tv the one the weird workplace drama yes severance (laughs) i didn't hear anybody talking about severance and then Mm. all of a sudden everybody was you know Mm. so it was very much the same thing where by the time the finale had come out people were really talking about it and excited about it. But when it was first released, you know, Mm -hmm. I I don't even think I heard about it. And yet again, you know, it was already cleared for season two and they're working on it. And so it makes you feel good about investing in a show when it's, when it's on Apple and when, Mm -hmm. when, you know, when something's on Netflix, it's like, even if mm-hmm. all of your friends are talking about it and it's getting great <laughs> critical review, they're like, yeah, no, we're going to cancel it. It's just yeah. like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Apple seems to have a bit more patience. I mean, C mm-hmm. got three seasons and yeah, Foundation's coming back. So hopefully it yeah. grows an audience because Silo is really good. Well, Dave. Uh, and they're making it this- so esoteric. They're like, yeah. you know, especially with with a, a show like Foundation, they're like, fuck it, we're going to make this arty and esoteric and we do <laughs> not give a fuck if the yeah. normal viewer, the average viewer doesn't doesn't understand it. And it that makes me so happy because otherwise <laughs> you have this homogenization aspect where every show has to be sort of dumbed down to a level so that mm-hmm. enough people will be immediately interested in it. I mean, I loved Wednesday. But even that had a homogenative aspect to it where it felt like it was very mass market. Mm. Yeah. You know, we just have to enjoy it while it lasts because people do turn on shows too. You never know. Like Witcher season three, nobody mm. seems to care at all. Mm. Well, it, it just seems like the streaming wars have made it really hard for anything that's at all niche to survive because, you know, like such a small percentage of the overall population subscribes to Apple TV Plus in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then if you have something that appeals to a niche audience within the Apple TV Plus subscriber community you know it seems like it can be really hard for that show to to get the word of mouth the show needs to i think streamers got really greedy i think that netflix's model of let's make a ton of shows way more shows than anybody has time to watch and then if you know uh tank 99 percent of them and only keep the ones that do phenomenally well like how is that a good business model i don't understand yeah right yeah, I, I was going to say, Dave. Uh, so this episode is going to have to be the 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 thing that ignites all of the talk about Silo on the internet. Because uh, if, <laughs> if, if people aren't talking about it already, like you know, we're going to get them talking about it now. You know, there's going to be that article on Wired, and then you know, we're going to have the podcast out there. So you know, maybe this will be it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If there's any uh, executives from streaming <laughs> networks uh, listening to this who might want to advertise on this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I just want to emphasize that is totally correct. This show has that power yeah. to propel any science fiction show to mass popularity. 
That is also, not in uh, any way an exaggeration. Yeah. <laughs> also, I have a project to pitch you. Just if you're, you're talking, you're, you're speaking to the executives. Yeah, to the listening. to the okay, theoretical okay. executive that's listening okay. to this. Hello again. We love you. <laughs> uh, don't listen to what Sarah was just saying. We love all you streaming guys. Yeah, they're on yeah. my shit list. <laughs> Sarah, we're trying to sweet talk them. Stop. <laughs> well, um, I mean, Raphael had an exciting announcement. Which do you want to say? Like, how much? How, however much you want to say about it, Raphael. Uh, oh, sure. Thanks. Um, I was fortunate enough to write a sci-fi horror film for Universal this past spring. Uh, it's a spinoff to a film that they had in theaters recently. I can't say too much more than that, but should hopefully come out next year. So that's been very exciting. Yeah, congratulations. I'm, I'm sure all the uh, all our loyal listeners who've, who've heard you on, you know, on various episodes will uh, you know, be curious to hear or be excited, you know, on your behalf. I certainly am. Well, thank um, you. Is there any way... I know you said you don't have a big web presence, really, but if, if someone's listening to this in the future and they're like, oh, I wonder what Raphael's movie, I wonder what that turned out to be. Is there any, uh, where should they where should they go to find out more? Oh, um, geez, that's a good question because we're not really using Twitter anymore, are we? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I signed up for Threads, you know, the, the Instagram Twitter clone. Um, you know, well, you said, it, should they, like your IMDb page with that? Yeah, sure. Right that's here. the easiest thing. Yeah, just Raphael Jordan on IMDb and uh, anything that I'm tagged in by Hollywood Reporter or Variety sure would come across there. Hmm. All right, cool. Yeah, no, because uh, Raphael Off-Air told us what it is, and yeah. I think it's really cool. So, yeah, I'm definitely... Yeah, congrats, man. I'm really I'm really excited for you. Oh, thanks so much, man. Uh, you and I have known each other a long time, so you've <laughs> seen the whole progression. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll also just say that John has an exciting announcement that... You guys listening to this will know because it will have been mentioned in his bio, but he can't tell us as <laughs> we're recording this. So I feel jealous of you future people. <laughs> it's more John's mystery box news. stuff. <laughs> but uh, yeah, sounds like it's going to be pretty awesome from, from what I gather. Uh, it's been uh, an agonizing several months of waiting. We thought we were going to announce this thing in like April and we're only going to be announcing it like, you know, a week for or like the, the week after. Uh, well, Let's see, in about five days from the time we're recording this, but it will be already out there by the time you're hearing this. Um, but it's, uh, it's very, very exciting. Yeah, but big, scary NDAs, right? So you can't, <laughs> yeah. can't tell us. Uh, and I want to keep anything. doing work with these people, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and also not get sued, of course. All right, well, congrats. I understand, even though I don't know what it is, I understand it's very exciting. So congratulations. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Um, all right, cool. So we should start wrapping this up. Uh, Sarah, any final thoughts on this whole uh, silo? It, it pleased me greatly when uh, Bernard said, the needs of the many require the sacrifices of the few. <laughs> <laughs> As a Trekkie, that, that just, you know, I was, I was Leonardo DiCaprio pointing meme when he said <laughs> that. I was very happy. Yeah, yeah, def- definitely uh, intentional reference yes. there <laughs> um all right cool uh john any final thoughts uh yeah i mean i'm just really excited to see season two and and uh hope that it uh, stays as uh, faithful as source material and all signs point to yes um but i'm also just really curious to see how they're going to tackle books two and three because 
you know, uh, without any spoilers. I mean, it's just there's going to be a lot of challenges for adapting those to television because of uh, like what you were saying earlier about like sort of the realities of television, you know, uh, you know, actors who are signed up for a thing and everything. And then once you start broadening it out to the, the wider world of what happens in the books, it's like, how are they going to juggle all that? It'd be really curious to see. Mm-hmm. And Raphael, final thoughts. You know, Rebecca Ferguson continues to do no wrong. I'll, hmm. I'll watch anything she's in. Uh, so far, I've loved the whole ride. And uh, yeah, I'm on board for as long as it goes. <laughs> cool. Yeah, and I, I would definitely encourage everyone to watch the first four episodes and, you know, make up your mind from there. Like, do not miss the first four episodes. They're spectacular. Uh, like I said, there were some some things I found exasperating a little bit about some of the other episodes. But I mean, overall, it's a really strong show. And I'm definitely very encouraged by John saying that it has a satisfying ending that's already, uh, you know, already exists out there that we're not uh, at risk of having them have no idea how to end (laughs) this thing. As this happens with other shows that I won't mention. Mm -hmm. Um, We mentioned them both already, didn't we? (laughs) (laughs) That that I won't mention again. Uh, (laughs) So David, I uh, want to go out, but I'm not going to clean. (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah yeah so uh um yeah but it's always good to have another another uh you know strong science fiction show on tv and definitely looking forward to future seasons and we know that we're going to get at least get a season two so definitely i will check that out when it comes out um and yeah rebecca ferguson absolutely fantastic in this show i thought um but yeah so let's uh wrap things up there so we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Raphael Jordan. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Raphael Jordan for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue... Please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.